My wife is sitting in the front row, Jenny. And uh, when we first met, which was about 23 years ago, uh, I was very excited to meet her. And we went on a date, that went really well. We went on another date a few nights later, that went really well. And within like days and just a couple of weeks, you know, I had fallen in love. And uh, being in love is this wonderful feeling where you go through your day and you're just sort of thinking about her, in my case, uh, more or less constantly. Right? And it was great to, well, it wasn't great at that time to be at work, but you know, I would be at work, but I'd be thinking about her. Right? I'd, uh, I'd, go, I'd take the dog on a walk and I'd be thinking about her. Uh, I would be, of course, going out with her and, and uh, talking on the phone with her and be thinking about her. And then I would talk to my friends and then they would ask, hey, what's new? And I would tell them about her. And those are, uh, the, this was quite a while ago, so uh, there were no smartphones, or at least I didn't have a smartphone, and there wasn't social media, and, and there were these uh, devices called cameras that you had to take pictures of instead of your cell phone. So there wasn't any like taking a picture or a selfie and then like sending it to your friends over text, whatever that was, and saying, uh, this is the girl I'm dating, and you're like, isn't she pretty? So I would, so you, and, and, and phones were actually used for talking to people, so I would actually like call my friends, and we would actually talk to each other, you know, like uh, a voice. It's, really, it's kind of weird, because you, there's this disembodied voice that's coming out of this device, and then you would, anyway, that's what a phone used to be. And so I would talk to my friends, and, and we would talk about life, and how, how life was going, and life with Jenny in those early days were very, was very heady. So. Hold that thought, right? So if you've been in love and you've had that experience, hold that thought. And I promise you that in about 45 minutes, I will come back to it and, and tie it in to what I'm about to say. Now, my sermon today is about work, which seems very different and unrelated to what I just said about being in love, but, but, it's, but it's related. So hold that thought, and we'll come back to it in a, in a little while. I have been in the midst of a series of sermons about the topic of work, primarily because as a pastor I want to address the uh, activity that we spend most of our waking hours doing. Right? And I'm not just talking about paid work. I'm those of us who are stay-at-home moms and those of us who are students uh, are called by God to do unpaid work in this season of life. We've done four sermons on the topic of work, and today is the fifth. In my first sermon back in September, I taught that work was des designed by God to be good. Right? We sometimes think of work as not being good, but, but work was designed to be good. God himself worked in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the universe in six days, including the pinnacle of his creation, humankind. He also rested on the seventh day. Now, God also created humankind to work. So work is ordained by God before the fall of humankind into sin, and therefore work is good. Work is good. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and that ruined work. It turned work into toil. The ground was cursed because of our sin, and it produces thorns and thistles for us. And metaphorically, we, we know that that means we now have a lot of problems at work. Could you imagine if there were zero problems at work, right? I can't, <laughs> frankly. The, the, the fall, though, means that all of Adam's and Eve's descendants from Cain and Abel all the way to us were born with a fallen, sinful nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, have short, fallen short of God's standard of holiness. And the wages of sin, speaking of work, the wages of sin is death. So God planned more work, and specifically it was the work of God the Son, who took on a human nature. He had, uh, from everlasting to everlasting, he had and has and will always have a God nature, but the second person of God took on a human nature. He was born the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, and that's what we commemorate at Christmas. He died on the cross as payment for our sins. Again, because 
The wages of sin is death. It must, the wages must be paid. He was resurrected after three days, showing that God accepted his work and showing that our future resurrection and everlasting life is a promise that will be fulfilled for all who believe. The resurrection is what we celebrate on Easter. In my second sermon in October, we explored the concept of vocation. Vocation is not just an educational term like vocational school. It is also a theological term that means calling. The theology of vocation is God calling each of us to do particular work and giving each of us gifts and talents to equip us. We learned from several chapters in Exodus about how God, after he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, empowered them with talent and ability, and in particular to a couple of Israelite artisans. He commanded them to make and build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all of the tools of worship that Israel was commanded to use to worship God, Yahweh. They were called to that work, they were gifted for that work, and they accomplished that work, and they did it to the letter, as the scriptures tell us. Now, in my third sermon in November, I explored two errors that we can make in our attitude toward work. For some of us, work is the most important thing that we do, and we'll sacrifice everything else to work, including, for example, not coming to church. We'll work on Sunday instead of coming to church. That, that happens sometimes, right? Uh, sacrificing everything else and not worshiping God as the highest priority is something we call idolatry, right? Trusting in something created rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. And for others of us, we don't like work that much. We only work because we have to, and that's sort of the opposite error of idolatry, more like slacking off or not living up to our potential. But if we're totally honest with ourselves, the root cause of slacking off is likely also some type of idolatry, not just, just, just not the idolatry of work itself. Right? So then we went to two letters in the New Testament, Colossians and Ephesians, and we learned that God wants us to work as though we are working directly for Jesus himself and not just for our human bosses. Or if we are bosses, to treat the people who work for us well because our boss is in heaven. Now, in my fourth sermon in December, we asked the question, what is the point of work? Okay, so sometimes we get lost in the drudgery of everyday life, and we just can't see what the point of the daily grind is. Or we start thinking much bigger picture, but maybe not big enough, and we think, I'm just going to die anyway, so what's the point of working my fingers to the bone just to leave it all behind? You can't take it with you. To explore this problem, we spent some time in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is 95% the writer convincing us that life is pointless. But it's not pointless. The other 5%, he makes the point that our lives and our work is God's gift to us. So in the end, the concluding command of Ecclesiastes is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, which is not very good news when you think about it because none of us fear God enough and none of us keep his commandments well enough. So in light of that bad news, we need the good news of Jesus Christ, his work, so that God will forgive us through our faith alone, through grace alone, through the work of Christ alone. He, he forgives us for sinning and falling short. So to sum up, in my first sermon, we addressed the question, how should we think about work? In my second sermon, I want to answer the question, how do we know what work God wants us to do? The third sermon, the question was, what should our attitude be toward work? Should, be, should we be religiously devoted to our work, or should we slack off and just sort of go through the motions? If neither of these, then how should we work? Right? And in the fourth sermon, we answered the question, what, what is the point of work? So I'm trying to uh, pose and answer these questions from Scripture for us because uh, these are very, very basic questions. Now, there, there are any number, like limitless numbers of, of other questions about work. Uh, you know, 
I can't even come up with examples, but there's just so many questions about work, and we're going to try to uh, accomplish some of these, but my hope and prayer is that this sermon series uh, helps us, like going from first principles to help us through the week, through the weeks, uh, and not just sort of like, this is what we learned on Sunday, and then we're not really thinking about uh, God or church or Jesus or the Bible or anything else like that Monday through Saturday, and then we come back to church on Sunday. I, I, you know, I, I really want us to be carrying these uh, messages, and literally every message from Sunday, but these messages in particular, with us as we work, okay? with us as we work. Okay? So the question for this fifth sermon is, what should our motives be in our work? What should our motives be in our work? Now, whether we acknowledge them or not, and whether we are honest about them or not, we all have motives for what we do. The question is, what should our motives be? So we can imagine a scale. We can imagine a scale where on this end, at the extreme end, our motives are exactly right. They're exactly what God wants us to be motivated by. And then on the other end of the scale, we might think of you know, motives that are so sinful and depraved that they are the diametric opposite, the polar opposite of what God wants us to be motivated by. by. Okay? All right. So what are godly biblical motives for our work? I'm going to propose three. Okay? I'm going to propose three, and they are ordered... And I'm going to present them from lesser to greatest importance. Okay? That's why the outline, if you look at your outline, uh, doesn't go 0.123. It goes 0.3, 0.2, and then 0.1. 0.3, 0.2, then 1. The order is important of these motives. If you get the order wrong, you commit a grave and possibly idolatrous error. So let's read them off the outline. The, these are my proposed uh, motives for our work that, are, that I believe are backed up in Scripture. Number three, we can work for our joy and our needs. Number two, we can work for others' good. And number one, and most importantly, we can work for God's glory. So let's start with number three. We can work for our joy and our needs. Okay, so I think this is the most obvious one. Right? This is the most obvious one. After all, why do we do anything that we do? Uh, because we want to. Right? At the very heart of, of it, it's, it's why, we, it, why we do anything is, is we want to. And that can be a little bit twisted when it comes to work because you know, we just have to do some kind of work in order to make money. Uh, I was talking to uh, one, of our, uh, one of the people at church earlier this week and just talking about how work is hard. Work is very difficult, and you know maybe he would choose different work uh, if he really uh, had other choices. So work work is difficult, but at the same time, we need to make money. We need to pay the bills, right? We need food, clothing, shelter, and and the other things, internet access, and cell phones, and whatnot. So those things cost money. So we need those things. So in some ways, this is the most obvious. This is the most obvious thing, right? We can work for our our joy and our needs. Um, Everyone in the world has this motive, right? And for our needs, God provides, right? Um, God provides, uh, as the outline says, uh, and the, the first thing that he provides is, uh, is the basic necessities that we have, right? So in Genesis 1.27, from the very beginning, this is before sinful humanity, God had just created them, and God said this uh, in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, this is the work part, this is a commission from God to go work, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the work. Verse 29, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, 
and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. So God is a gracious God. He's going to give human beings food from the very beginning. And notice it's, it's just plants and fruits, seeds and things like that. So where's the meat? Well, the meat comes actually quite a bit later. And in uh, Genesis 9, so this is after the flood, this is after, much farther after the, the fall of humanity, uh, Jesus, uh, God then says, um, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And thank God, right, because now we can eat meat. Right? Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. So now we've got, we've got vegetables and we've got meat. Okay, thank goodness. All right, so then God continues to provide for us, and he also doesn't want us to worry. So we move to the New Testament and to Matthew chapter 6. If you want to flip there, you can read along. In Matthew chapter 6, we're in the midst of uh, what we call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says this, For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, food, clothing, right? Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he starts reasoning from the animals. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than birds? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? So God's going to provide for us, right? Through our work, by the way. So we work, God provides. This is how... The system goes, right? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, very rich man, if you didn't know, uh, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Right? So, He's going to provide for us. We don't need to worry, right? So don't worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, and I guess I could just explain very briefly that, that uh, Jesus is preaching to an all-Jewish audience here, and so he, he's saying that even people who don't believe in God eagerly seek all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but what? Seek first His kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. So you pursue God, right? glorify God, work according to how he wants us to work, and God's going to provide for us. Okay? So God is, God, is very, uh, God is very gracious in this, and he provides for us. So God provides for our basic needs. We also work for our family's needs. Right? We work for our family's needs. Those of us who are married or those of us who have, have children, those of us who have family, older uh, generations perhaps that we're taking care of, we have family and we need to work in order to provide for not just ourselves but for our family. And the scriptures talk a lot about this as well. Right? In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, I have it up here on the screen, the Apostle Paul writes, make it your ambition... Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Okay. Here, he's saying, he had been speaking to them and apparently the church in Thessalonica had been having some problems with people who were busybodies and getting into other people's businesses and gossiping. And so he's like, look, lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, don't stick your nose into other people's business, work with your hands, Right? So good, like working with your hands, physical labor, manual labor, that's good. Just as we commanded you. Okay, so why? So you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So apparently there were people who were sponging off their fellow believers, but also not just that, but also you know, perhaps um, not behaving properly toward outsiders. And to this day, we have people who are sponging Right? Uh, and, and they don't do enough work. They don't uh, make enough money. And you know, they rely, let's say, on the charity of others or perhaps government support or whatever. Right? There wasn't government support back then. You needed to work in order to do that or rely on the charity of others. But uh, if you can work and you can work with your hands, you should work and you should produce and then you should 
enjoy the fruits of your labor and not be in any need. This is what the scriptures say. And then the Apostle Paul also goes and talks in, the first, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, and he, now there's a warning, right? Now there's a warning about not providing for yourself and your family. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, okay, you're supposed to do that. If you don't do that, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yikes. So you should be working. We should be working. We should be providing for our family's needs. Right? And if you're not, you, I guess you can't even call yourself a Christian. Worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. All right. Lastly, in terms of working for ourselves, and this is where the enjoyment comes in, we work for our own joy and our own satisfaction, don't we? And that is a, that's a real gift from God. Right? And, and we pursue it, and, and even people who are uh, not Christians do this. They work for their own joy, their own satisfaction, because, you know, we do what we want to do. Right? Uh, this goes back to my last sermon a little bit, because we covered this in, uh, we covered this in, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 5, there's a few verses that, uh, that tell us that, that working for our joy and our satisfaction is a good thing, right? Verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I mean, think about how gracious God is to provide all these things, right? So, we enjoy ourselves, with the fruit of our labor, right? Uh, the years of his life, God has given us years of our lives. And to every man whom God has given riches and wealth, not everyone uh, gets riches and wealth, obviously. The poor will always be among us, Jesus said. But, but to, to whom God has given his riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. So it's not sinful to be rich. God sometimes gives people wealth grants people wealth, and, and we're allowed to enjoy that. Okay? And then we're not going to be thinking about you know, how uh, cruddy our life is because God keeps us occupied with gladness in our heart. God is very gracious in this. So these are, all, these are all good motives, right? Work for yourself, work for the needs of yourself and your family, work for your satisfaction, work for your joy. And this is, uh, this is a good godly motive for work, but it really needs to be number three, okay? It really needs to be number three. Now, think about what happens if this is, let's say, number one, right? If this is number one instead of number three, what do we get? We get selfishness. We're just working for ourselves. Right? We're just selfish. We're just going through life, doing things that we want to do. We hoard our wealth, right? and we're just doing things for ourselves. Uh, we might be climbing the corporate ladder, backstabbing people along the way. Right? We've been in competitive environments where this is the case. It's not pleasant. Right? But this is what happens if you put number three first. So this is an issue. Right? So we have to consider the other two motives. Right? All right, now we uh, go to, we can work for uh, others' good. Now, at this point, I'd love for you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll get there in a little bit. We'll spend more time in chapter 10. But I want to start with chapter 1 uh, to give an overview of the letter before we get to the part I want to talk about. So 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's uh, right after the book of Romans. Right? So we're going to start with uh, chapter 1 and just ha have a little overview. Now, before we get there, I want to talk about uh, how we can work for others' good and how the Bible talks about this as well. Okay, so, uh, one of the ways in which we work for others' good is, is just to bless our community and our world. 
And if you think about it, almost, almost everything, I wouldn't say everything, but almost everything that we do blesses our fellow human beings in some way or another. I, I don't really have Bible quotes for this particular concept, but Christian theologians from centuries past, not, notably Abraham Kuyper, have developed the doctrine that our work blesses others. And if you think about it, we are enjoying the fruits of other people's labor and, and being blessed by that, right? We're, you're all sitting in chairs. Those are nice, pretty comfortable chairs. Uh, we know that's true because on Google Maps, our, our review says that we have com comfortable chairs. It's such a strange thing to say. It's literally just a one-sentence review. Their chairs are comfortable. Okay, thank you. But the chairs are comfortable, right? So somebody made those chairs, right? So somebody worked in the factories that made those chairs. Somebody made the fabric, the foam, the, you know, the steel workers made the steel that, that went into the chairs. Uh, somebody sold the chairs, right? Somebody delivered the chairs to us. So all of that work blessed us with chairs that we can sit on. Right? I've been on trips out of the country to, to serve others uh, as, I guess, kind of a missionary. And uh, yeah, they, they don't have comfortable chairs to sit on. They're sitting on logs, which aren't bad, but, but they're not comfortable chairs. Right? Think about the light bulbs. Right? The light bulbs, you can see me better because that light bulb, somebody, you know, Edison invented it and other people improved it and then other people you know, made them and sold them, and, you know, Mike installed them, so we're, we're getting, you know, we're being blessed just by some, like a lot of people's works, just in, just in the light bulbs. We drove here, the roads are made by people, our cars are made by people. All of this work bless, blesses each other, right? So it's great. So there's just countless examples. Anything that benefits us as a neighborhood or a society is a blessing that is the product of someone's work. Okay, so we, we do that as well. Uh, we bless others to, in order to share with others. Okay? We bless others in order to share with others. So in Acts chapter 2, so the book of Acts is a history of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, uh, Jesus had, gone, uh, had been resurrected and, and raised up to heaven. He had sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come upon the people. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, we read this, right? All those who had believed in Jesus, of course, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all uh, as anyone might have need. This isn't some weird form of Christian communism. It's just they're just being generous with, with one another, right? Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, as opposed to uh, not behaving properly toward outsiders and being in need, right? Having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what were they doing? They were selling their property, they were selling their possessions and giving to those who had need. They were sharing. We see a little bit more of this in Ephesians 4.28. In Ephesians 4.28, there's more of, a, more of a warning. This is a letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus, and among many other things that he writes to them, he writes that he who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Again, what is the motive for working? Well, first of all, so you don't sin, so you're not stealing, or I guess a form of stealing would be the aforementioned sponging off of people, right? But stealing, taking that which is not yours, shoplifting or just stealing from the marketplace or whatever, don't steal anymore, but rather work. Perform with your own hands what is good. You'll have something to share with someone who has need. He doesn't even mention the meeting your own needs part. He says, meet your own needs, and then you have something to share with someone else who has need. All right. So then we also, uh, speaking of needs, we, we also uh, we have more scriptures that talk about other people's needs. Okay? And the scripture, uh, again, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, he, he talks about meeting other people's needs, in, and he frames it in terms of, Jesus doing the same for us. 
So this is the scripture that we read in the opening, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. But in the midst of that, he, he writes this, like, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Right? So if we have motive number three as number one, we'll be working from selfishness or, or conceit. So he says instead, he says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay? So I might be important, but I'm going to regard all of you as more important than myself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. You can, of course. It doesn't say you can't. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What does Philippians 2 go on to say? To have this attitude which was in Jesus. He's God. He humiliated himself. He humbled himself. Took on a human nature. Right? All, I don't need to go into this, but all of Jesus' uh, history as a man, you know, born out of, uh, well, conceived out of wedlock, and then like humiliated, no doubt, like during his childhood, and then, you know, growing up and, and working with his hands as a carpenter, or perhaps a mason, and then, and then being homeless for at least three and a half years as he travels the countryside telling people about himself and the, the coming kingdom of God. And then eventually, what? sacrificing himself, giving himself up for us because he loves us, allowing himself to be unjustly tried and murdered because that is the wages of sin, his death, and he paid it for us. So having this attitude, which was the same attitude that Jesus had, which is to do what? To act for other people's good. Because why? Because we have a need our greatest need, which is we have sin and we are otherwise condemned by God. That is our greatest need, but Jesus gave himself up for us to meet our need. So we do the same to meet others' needs. Then a little bit on a, on a more uh, material note, in John, 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17, we read this. We know love by this, and he's talking about Jesus, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In some cases, in this era, this literally means giving, like dying for, for your fellow believers. But uh, for us, we might not have a chance to, to literally die, but um, laying down our lives for our brethren is is to, to consider other people more important than ourselves, right? to sacrifice our own time, talent, and energy, and treasure for others. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And we understand that to, to mean no, it doesn't. Right? So if you, have the, if you have riches and wealth and you see your brother in need and you don't provide, you don't share with them and meet his needs, you know, you could argue that you don't have the love of God in you. Okay. All right, so we, uh, we work to bless others for others' good, to bless our community, our world, to share with others, to meet others' needs. And this goes, this now gets us to back to 1 Corinthians. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians, a quick overview. In chapter 1, uh, Paul is... Uh, addressing the church at Corinth, which is a city in Greece. It's, uh, it's still a, a major city in Greece today. And he's appealing to them. There have a lot of problems in this church. Okay? And he starts off by saying that, well, he, this is why God did what he did with Jesus. And it seems like foolishness, but God uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong so that we know that things come from God. So that's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, chapter 3, he's talking about how uh, we need to have uh, Christ as our foundation, okay? Because things that we do for Christ, if we do it for Christ, those are the things that are going to last, and all of our work is going to be measured. Okay? Uh, chapter 5 and 6, uh, he he starts talking about the, the moral problems in the church at Corinth and saying, I can't believe that you guys aren't disciplining some people that are, are doing some things. And also, you're having arguments among yourselves and suing each other in court 
you should not be doing that. You need to resolve this among yourselves. That's chapter 6. Okay. And then, now turn to chapter 7, and there's this phrase here, the very beginning of chapter 7, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So evidently he is answering questions that they had written him a letter about. And so chapter 7, it talks about marriage, okay? Talk, uh, and, and using uh, the body um, and really about asceticism, like denying yourself uh, pleasure. And he, he's talking about this in, in, the, in the sense of marriage. Then in the beginning of chapter 8, chapter 8 starts this section which is uh, really four chapters long, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Okay, so this, now it's going to include the part that we're going to about talk about. And in chapter 8, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, let's just talk about contextually what this is. He's talking about meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, what do we mean by this? Because we don't really have this. So there are, there are false gods in Greek society, right, in Roman society, and they would have temples, and then you would uh, make animal sacrifices in the temples, and then the priests would, you know, essentially like butchers, would, would uh, butcher the meat and then sell the meat in the marketplace. And then this is also how the, um, the, the workers, the religious workers of the temples w would make money. And then so the Christians had this question, should we eat these things? Because we worship the only one true God, right? And now we've got meat sacrificed to idols. Should we be eating them? And Paul goes through chapters uh, 8 and 9, uh, like giving a, 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 an argument for why it's okay if your conscience doesn't bother you about it, right? It's, it's kind of like what, what God, said to, uh, God said to Noah's offspring in Genesis chapter 9, this meat I, I've given to you. So Paul is saying it's okay to do that. But, but, but he's saying also that if your brother has a problem with it, your Christian brother has a problem with it, then don't do it. And this is where it gets to um, this issue of doing things for others' goods and laying aside your own rights and privileges, right? So here we get to, to chapter 10. In chapter 10, in verse 23, he writes this, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Okay, so you're allowed to eat this meat, but it might not be profitable for you. You're allowed to eat this meat, but it might not build you up. Okay? In verse 24, it says this exact same point which I've been making. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Okay? So lay aside your rights and privileges, right? In, in my household, I get a lot of this all the time. I can if I want to. I hear it all the time. And yeah, maybe you can, or maybe you can't, you're just wrong, right? But I can if I want to, and I hear this all the time, and, and that's like sort of the diametric opposite of what's being taught to us here. It's like, yeah, you can if you want to, but maybe it's not good for your brother or your sister to do that, right? So don't seek your own good, but that of your neighbor. All right, then he starts talking about this in specifically. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. You're allowed to do it, okay? And then he quotes Psalm 24.1, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Literally, God owns it all. Okay? God owns it all. It's all God's. So everything that we have, our food, our clothing, everything that we own actually belongs to God, and we're just stewards. That's a whole different subject. But the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Verse 27, If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone, and here he has in mind, you know, a fellow believer, if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for conscience sake. Not your own conscience, but the other man's. Okay? For the other man's. Okay, so what, how do we apply this in our life? Well, next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, you might go to a Super Bowl party, after church, of course, right? Don't skip church to go to a Super Bowl party. Super Bowl starts at 3.30, for crying out loud. Uh, and, the, and, and then, you know, the Super Bowl parties you know, might serve alcohol. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to be drunk, okay? So that's, that's definitely, you know, from Scripture. But, you know, Jesus drank wine. He 
served wine. He turned water into wine. He, right, so it's not a, a sin to drink alcohol. But if your Christian friend is with you at the party who, let's say, is a, a recovering alcoholic, he might be just hanging on, you know, by a thread in order not to be tempted to drink. Everybody else is drinking around, and, and then he just needs you to be shoulder to shoulder with him and not drink. And he's not going to drink either. And the two of you are stronger together. So for his sake, don't drink. Right? So that would be an application. He goes on to say, you know, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? It doesn't need to be. If I partake with thankfulness, right, if I give thanks to God for, for this gift of meat, in this case, that he's giving, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? He's saying it, it's a rhetorical question. He shouldn't be, but he's going to lay aside his rights and his privileges in order to do what's good for the other person. Okay? So, that is, that is uh, this little section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what does this have to do with work? Same point that we've been making. So this is about food, but I think by principle, by extension, we can extend it to pretty much anything that we do, and, and I'm going to just include work. So if we work, we work for other people's good and not for only for our own selfish desires. Okay? And that's where we get to the next point, right? Which is this. The next, very, the next verse is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay? And that brings us to our top priority, our top motive. We can work for God's glory. Okay? Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be our top motive. Okay, remember when I talked about being in love? Okay, that was the beginning of the sermon. I promised I would tie it back to, to work, and here it is. Let's just think for a moment, right? Because I was talking about how when I was first dating Jenny and we'd fallen in love, like she was on my mind more or less constantly. And I think that as we work, we should try to have that same attitude with God. Just be thinking about God, who God is, right? Who God is, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his glory, his holiness, his love, his mercy. The fact that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's literally nothing else like him. Just ruminate on God. Enjoy God. Meditate on God. Pray to God when you're spurred to do that. Right? Think about what he has done for us, right? which is both common grace and, uh, and particular grace. The, the common grace that all human beings share, just the light, the sunshine, food, clothing, shelter, all of the, all of the good things that we get from God, whether we're sinful and forgiven or sinful and not forgiven. Think about what Jesus has done for us, gave himself up for us, go, went through humiliation, went through death, death on a cross. The most shameful kind of death, the kind of death where you're hanging on that wooden cross, people walking by, slandering you and spitting at you, spitting at Jesus, who didn't do anything wrong, he gave himself up for us. Thank you, Jesus. Right? What he has done for us. And then we tell people about him. Because when you glorify God, you can tell people about him. That is one of the ways in which we glorify him. And we can do that in our work. Um, so here's a, a panel from the Action Bible. Right? The Action Bible is a comic book version of the Bible. Uh, quite faithful, and um, this is from Acts chapter 16. This lady is Lydia, and uh, the guy in the green uh, cloak there is the Apostle Paul. It, right, uh, if you can't see it, I'll read it. It says, the missionaries joined the worshipers. Soon, Paul is telling them about Jesus. A cloth merchant named Lydia speaks up. Okay, that's her work. She's a merchant seller of cloth, purple cloth. 
She says, God has opened my heart to receive your message. I believe in Jesus. Will you baptize me? Absolutely. Absolutely. So next panel, right? Soon all the members of Lydia's household are baptized. Lydia invites the missionaries to make her home their headquarters while they're in Philippi. Pretty exciting, right? Now they, they got, they've got shelter, right? She's, she's being hospitable. That's another Christian uh, quality, virtue, is hospitality. And then she holds out the purple cloth. She says, the Romans love purple. I sell most of my cloth to them. And Paul says what? He says, as you sell to them, tell them about Jesus. Exactly. Right? As you are doing whatever is you're doing in work, right? whatever God has called you to do, light bulbs, chairs, you know, asphalt, whatever it is, right? teaching, uh, accounting, whatever, don't, you don't have to be just a pastor in order to tell people about Jesus. We're all called to tell people about Jesus, but right, it, in theory, we should not even need the calling to tell people about Jesus because we should just be so appreciative and so excited about what Jesus has done for us that we naturally want to tell people about him. Right? And if you don't, then you need to probably you know, examine yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith. Because if you have been forgiven a great debt, you probably want to tell people about how you got forgiven this great debt and how their debt can be forgiven too, because it costs you nothing. So we glorify God in our work. Here's another example of someone who's uh, glorifying God in his work. This is uh, Brock Purdy. He's the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. And he... uh, He's got a really fascinating story, actually. He's the last guy drafted. He's a rookie, and then he's leading the, the Niners to basically the su- uh, almost the Super Bowl. <laughs> Pardon me, Eagles fans. Every time I step on the field, I want to bring him glory. Every time I step on the field, I want to bring him glory. Now, he is going to get a plenty of his own glory, right? Uh, countless articles have been written about him, and he's, uh, it's very exciting you know, for the 49ers. Uh, and then you know, they fell just short of going to the Super Bowl, right? They lost to the Eagles. And he was hurt during that game, right? So God is not some magic genie where you give glory to him and then he makes things happen and like he, he makes all your wildest dreams come true. This ended, you know, sort of badly for him and the rest of his team. But nonetheless, he's trying to give glory to God, right? And he's doing that because he's at a platform. I mean, the whole reason why this is a meme that I found on social media is because he said it and then somebody put a picture of him next to his quote and then now everybody knows, right? So he's saying this, and then he's giving glory to God, uh, not literally during the time that he's playing football, but you know, afterwards when he's gotten famous. Right? So this is good. Now, that being said, on a side note, uh, don't, uh, don't idolize uh, you know, Christian athletes because, um, I don't know, I can think of uh, one example in particular of a guy, superstar, and then you know, left his wife, you know, said he was a Christian, and then left his wife and married somebody else, and it's just, yikes. Jesus would never do that, because Jesus is a faithful husband, and we are the bride of Christ. So Jesus would never do that. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, should not get divorced, right? Certainly not abandon your wife, because Jesus would never do that. So don't idolize, you know, Christians or whatever. Um, you know, we worship God, okay? But I wanted to point that out as an example, okay? So, we can work for God's glory, and so whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. So now, in conclusion, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? Now, grace be, uh, you know, glory be to God that we do not have to work for our salvation. In fact, there's nothing we can do in order to get into God's favor. All of the other religions of the world have this system set up where you do things for whatever God that you worship, and then they do things back for you. And then you kind of know when you're not in favor with God because, you, you know, because he, with that particular deity, because uh, you don't have favor, right? And then, so this is how, you know, Buddhists and, and like people who believe in reincarnation and all of these things, it's all about what you can do. But in Christianity, in biblical Christianity, that is not the way that it works. God has already done the work for us. And all we have to do is believe. 
Jesus has done the work for us. I've mentioned this. He, is, he lived a perfect life that we could never live, so he's perfectly holy. The wages of sin is death. He, didn't, he never sinned, and so he didn't have to pay the wages, but he did anyway. He paid our wages on our behalf by hanging on the cross and by dying for us. So all we have to do is believe in him because we are sinful. We do have potentially wages to pay, which is death. We deserve everlasting hell, everlasting torment in hell. And our motives, you know, we think about our motives. We do things for our own enjoyment. We do things for other good. We do things for for the glory of God. Our motives will never be pure. We cannot hope to be good enough for God. We can never work our way to heaven or to God's good graces. Jesus had to work in order to make that happen. And that is the good news. Because if if we have to work for it, which is impossible, that is very, very bad news. But the good news is that Jesus has done it. So, we believe in Jesus. And I invite you to believe in Jesus. Those of us sitting right here in front of us, those of you tuning in online, outside, in the family room, if you haven't believed in Jesus, I urge you, I beg you, be reconciled to God through Jesus. He is gracious to forgive. The gift is open to all. I want you to be saved. The rest of us want you to be saved. When we go out and tell people who are unsaved, it's not us against them. It's us for them in the hopes that God, through His grace, will make them some of us. You know, Jesus followed these three godly motives for his work. And uh, if you want to stick a a place mark in 1 Corinthians 10, we'll get back to the last few verses. And then turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. uh, John chapter 17 uh, is uh, telling, telling things about what Jesus did and said. And in this particular chapter, we have an extended quote from Jesus And it is what we call the high priestly prayer. In other words, Jesus praying for us. Jesus praying for his believers. And he's praying uh, from himself to God, of course. And so we're going to see how Jesus worked for God's glory first and foremost. In the beginning of the prayer, we read this. Jesus spoke these things. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the what? The work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay. What's he talking about? He's talking about God's glory. And he starts his prayer with God's glory. His own glory and God the Father's glory. Okay. So that's this quote. I, I'd written it down, but I could show it on the screen. Okay. Secondly, what? Number two, Jesus worked for others' good, specifically our good. There's a quote again. Verse 9, I'm just going to pick something because, you know, I don't want to go on too long. But verse 9, I ask on their behalf, okay, for other people. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on the behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I ask for his own disciples. Skipping to verse 20, he writes, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, not just these guys that are right here, but for those who also believe in me through their word. And who are those who believe in him through the word of the apostles? Us. Generations, thousands of years later, we believe because somebody shared the good news with us through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the scriptures, right? Who also believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That was the mission that God 
put Jesus on. Okay? The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14. So, and also in this, we we have union with God, right? We are in God. God is in us. We we have union with Jesus, union with Christ. So he worked for our good. And then lastly, Jesus worked for his joy and for our joy. And for this, we have verse 13. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that you may have, sorry, so they, the believers, may have my joy made full in themselves. Okay? My joy. Jesus has joy going to the cross. Okay? Yeah, he's sweating blood, etc. But he has joy. It is the Father's good pleasure to do this for us. Right? To send the Son. It's the Son's good pleasure to do this. The Holy Spirit has a ministry to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son who has done this for us. And why? For our joy as well. So that we may have joy in being reconciled to God and being forgiven through Christ. So Jesus prioritizes prioritizes God's glory first. Jesus worked for others' good, our good specifically. And Jesus worked for his own joy and for others' joy as well. So then we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the closing point is, therefore, we imitate him. Okay? So if we believe what, we, what he has done for us, then we imitate him. And we do that for God's glory and for others' good and for our own joy. Right? Verse 32. Verse 32. Give no offense to either Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Okay. What's he talking about? He's talking about this meat sacrifice to idols thing. Right? So don't offend the Jews in, in, do, in making these decisions, or to the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, right? or to the church of God, uh, which is largely a, a subset of Jews uh, in this early stage, but it also starts including more Gentile Christians, right? or to the church of God. So don't give offense. Don't offend anybody. Right? And then he says this, just as I also please men in all things. And this harkens back to chapter 9 where he was saying, look, I'm going to be really, really flexible in terms of reaching people so that I can win them to Christ. He says, woe is me if I do not preach Christ, uh, verse 9:16. And then he says, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Verse 11, one, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Right? So what is Paul's mission? Paul's mission is, I'm not seeking my own profit. I'm seeking the profit of the many so they may be saved. I'm doing, the, I'm doing this for others' good. And he just wrote, I'm doing this for God's glory. Right? And he's saying... Do likewise. Be imitators of me. Go and tell people. Win people to Christ for God's glory and for other people's good and for your own joy. So that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And we just covered how in John chapter 17 Christ did all these things for these very same motives. Okay? So lastly... Part of us declaring the good news of Jesus is a little meal that we share here at church called the Lord's Supper or Communion. And we, and we just read part of John 17, the high priestly prayer. And just before praying this, Jesus had instituted, right, this was the night before he gave his life for us, Jesus had instituted this ordinance, right? He took the bread, and he took the wine, and he said that when we eat it, we remember him, and we declare his death until he comes. This is part of our work. So we go out from here Monday through Friday, and we're going to do whatever work that God has called us to do. But part of our work just as Christians is to declare his death, to preach the good news of salvation to a lost and perishing world. We sang earlier this morning, Work, for the night is coming. These are Jesus' words. There won't be time to do this forever and ever and ever. We will glorify God forever and ever and ever in the life to come. 
Right? We will sing praises to him forever and ever and ever in the life to come. And we will have fellowship with each other. We will, actually, we will have work uh, in the life to come, just not fallen work, you know, redeemed work. But what kind of work won't we have? We will not have missional work. Work to reach the lost, the perishing. So that is what we are called to do. Right? We are preaching the good news of salvation to a lost and perishing world while it is still daytime because the night is coming. For the glory of God, for the glory of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for others' good that they may not perish but have everlasting life, and for our joy that we may rejoice with the angels when a sinner is saved by God's grace. Now we're about to take this meal. If you're new here, this is what we do. We have three stations up here. Uh, just follow your neighbors. If you are sitting next to someone you don't recognize and they look a little lost, help them. What we're going to do, we're going to come to the front of these aisles. We are going to take uh, one of the crackers and a little cup of the juice, return to your seat. Uh, you can sit down, pray a little bit, take the, the, the bread and the juice uh, at your own pace while the music is going on. And then we will sing one more song and close. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us your word that we may understand you, that we may know you, we may know your son, we may know your work and his work and, and the work that you want us to do and how you want us to do it and how you want us to be motivated to do that work, any work that you've called us to. We thank you, Lord God, for all these things. We thank you for your son and, and salvation. May we depart this place with the, the word of your salvation on our lips for your glory and for others' good and for our own joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.